0: Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. previously on Somebody Somewhere.
1: Another bizarre twist in this case. It came out of nowhere. You have to start thinking, what other alternatives are possible?
0: Maybe it wasn't a -A Makarov 9mm. It was like, this is our last big chance to get this
1: guy. It's a big leap to kill somebody. No indication, except for the Karatou Matter.
2: This is Episode 9, The Karatou Matter. I'm your host, David Payne.
3: There are people out
1: there who know who killed you. We will never give up our search for the truth. We will never
2: have no idea. It could have been a a vacuum cleaner salesman. I never thought I'd be here 15 years later.
0: All of a sudden, it made a hard bank to either the left or to the right, and it plummeted straight down into the ground. You know, I looked at the facts of the case, and I thought there was only one plausible suspect, so it's not like I'm going to fault the FBI for their tunnel vision. The problem, again, was the evidence was tantalizingly ambiguous.
2: And there was another thing that was ambiguous about Steve Jackson, the pilot his possible involvement in the Caratu matter. In 1994, there would be a mysterious plane crash near the Lyndon Washington airport that would kill a man named Ken Caratu. Caratu was a mechanic who had been hired by the pilot and his partner, Kim Powell, to do work on the helicopter that was the subject of the Whale's indictment some six years later. In the FBI's efforts to confirm or clear their prime suspect, Investigators had been combing through Jackson's life before the murder. And that scrutiny would uncover all sorts of alleged prior bad acts. Police reports of domestic violence, restraining orders, threatening behavior, and scared ex-wives. But perhaps the biggest area of intrigue for agents was this mysterious plane crash that killed Ken Caratu. There's a lot of what I call circumstantial evidence or character evidence about prior bad acts, and you guys reported on some of that. One of the things that caught our eye was this whole question about the 1994 ultralight crash of <laughs> Kenny Caratu. <laughs> <of Kenny laughs> well, yeah, I mean, good luck with that, man. In 2003, Steve Militesh and Mike Carter of the Seattle Times reported that federal authorities were suspicious of and reinvestigating the crash of Ken Caratu's ultralight. Do you remember what that allegation was in terms of what happened up at the Linden Airport? The suggestion was that
1: perhaps the ultralight had something that had been tampered with. What was the motive for that? A debt. I think that Karatu allegedly owed money to the pilot. And that was not only a motive at the moment, but was consistent with the theory that money meant a lot to the pilot, as it was in the helicopter case.
2: The newspaper recounted a 1994 meeting between the pilot and Karatu over an alleged debt of $20,000. The Seattle Times reported that a friend of the pilot told the FBI that she had accompanied him when he talked to Karatu about the debt. And that during that visit, which was just days before the crash, she said the pilot went alone into a nearby hangar where the ultralight was kept. The Times sourced federal authorities for this information, and the article carried the Fed's thinly veiled suggestion that the pilot had sabotaged the plane, and therefore, it wasn't a leap to believe he was capable of killing whales some eight years later. The motive put forward was the pilot was so angry about the money he was owed that he killed the debtor, Ken Karatu. Two things struck me about this story. First, I'm not sure how killing the guy who owes you money gets you the money. And second, the source for this information seemed to be the same case agents who, by this point, had already decided who they wanted for the Wales murder.
1: Yeah, I mean, we reported out everything we know on that. You know, it is what
2: it is. He went in the garage and came out, and the next day, the plane crashed. Were you able to corroborate that story about him going into that garage, or was that from a federal authority only? I think that that
1: came from sources. We were able to corroborate through records... Some parts of the event,
2: some of it was sourced. The reason I asked that the way your reporting read to me was federal law enforcement sources say that this happened. And I'm wondering either if you had the chance to talk to people at the Linden Airport or otherwise to corroborate that.
1: No, I think the most we had was a sheriff's report. It was pretty vague on the crash. And I don't believe we spoke to the woman who went there with him. But it was...
2: Obviously, the other thing that struck me about the carer matter is that every lawyer knows that unless there is a clearly defined pattern of misconduct, you can't admit evidence of someone's prior bad acts in a criminal trial. So this line of inquiry by the FBI wouldn't help it in any murder prosecution for the whale's death. So it looked to me like the whole carer matter was simply an effort to confirm internal bias about a case theory or an effort to influence the public or maybe even an effort to show progress to the bosses in Washington. But while we found the whole affair bizarre from an evidentiary standpoint, like the feds, we couldn't help but be drawn into the mystery of what exactly happened in Linden. And little did we know that once we started digging, we would find the true antagonist of this story. This single bell helicopter that Caratu was fixing when he died and which Wales would be fixated on when he died as well. Ken Caratu was a helicopter mechanic of Canadian origin, and judging by the quality of his work, he seemed to be a pretty good one.
0: Ken was a pretty quiet guy. He was the kind of guy that's, you know, laying on his back underneath the dash of a helicopter doing wiring, you know, and just leave me alone. I want to do my work.
2: How did it come about? That's the former general manager of the Linden Airport. Or to be more accurate, the general manager of a landing strip nestled between a row of houses and hangars just minutes from the Canadian border. Here's Caratou's former business partner, John Hearn, describing the airport back in the day. Paint a picture of what that airport
4: is like and the hangar. And... Oh, it's a little country airplane with uh, electric wires at both ends of the at the field. If you don't know how to fly an airplane and go over the wires, get on the pavement without running into that telephone up the other end, like a couple people have done you don't want to go into there
3: so you explain sir what the hangar situation was uh, and how it was adjacent to the runway yeah.
4: well it was right alongside the runway there was one large building and one part of it had some storage in it that belonged to the airport people and then i had a great big hangar bay that you could put a couple large airplanes in or one big one and on the other end i had A little bunk room, a kitchen, a place to take a shower, and then I had a... Back in
2: 1993, Ken Caratou had been hired by Steve Jackson, the pilot, and his business partner, Kim Powell, to do electronic work on their 204B helicopter. Caratou's business partner in Linden was a man named John Hearn. Hearn was renting an airplane hangar at the Linden Airport, where Caratu would do the work. Hearn was going through a divorce at the time and was living out of the hangar, and he welcomed the opportunity to earn a little more income subletting the space to Jackson and Powell. But that seemingly simple arrangement would ignite a firestorm that still brews today after Hearn and Caratu had a falling out.
4: Ken had his guns, he always had guns in his truck and his mobile, and they had theirs and then I had one too. And it almost came down to a, a shootout. But the police, you know, these guys, Powell, and, and their buddies in their trucks, and I didn't want that.
2: But to understand how it all escalated to a near shootout, you actually had to go back a few years earlier still.
3: Every time we turn around, there's like some new twist in this.
2: In the microfiche copy of an ancient lawsuit that hasn't seen the light of day in more than 20 years, we find the seeds of hate and greed that spawned Karatu's hiring and maybe led to his death. And at the center of it all, was an ill-fated partnership. Not the one between Caritu and Hearn, but the one between the pilot and Kim Powell. Here's Powell's description of how the helicopter rebuilding venture got started from one of the affidavits in the lawsuit. We've engaged an actor to read it since Kim Powell was a ghost. I first met Steve Jackson during the
0: 1980s when Mr. Jackson was employed as a flight instructor in the Bellingham Airport. I was employed as a helicopter parts broker. Mr. Jackson became aware that I had in my possession a hull for a Bell helicopter, which is the subject of this litigation. Mr. Jackson believed that a joint venture for the reconstruction of this helicopter would be extremely profitable and solicited my involvement in the joint venture. Mr. Jackson was to provide all of the capital necessary to finance the reconstruction of the helicopter. I would be responsible, as the parts broker, to arrange for the purchase of all parts necessary for the rebuilding
2: of the helicopter. The math looks something like this. Jackson would put up 200K in financing for rebuilding a Huey and turning it into a civilian aircraft, a Bell 204B. Powell would contribute the hull and his time, effort, and expertise. And when it was all said and done, the two men would own 50-50, a helicopter they could either lease for lucrative government contracts or sell for $1.2 million. And Powell and the pilot weren't the only ones who had figured out this racket. Defense attorney Bob Chadwell gave us the big picture.
5: And in Vietnam, Bell Helicopter produced... Thousands and thousands of Huey helicopters. So as has happened after most major conflicts, you have a surplus of equipment. Well, not much market for tanks or armored personnel carriers and things like that, but aircraft are available. So I had heard specifically about these helicopters being used in logging, being used by utility companies to fly their power lines. And so I was aware.
2: And not just for logging and utilities, but firefighting and other government services that paid extremely well. And the confluence of a surplus of old Huey helicopters and a market to use rebuilt ones for government contracts created a cesspool of opportunity for those who wanted to exploit it.
5: I mean, these guys reminded me a lot of folks who were in the junk car business, the parts business. You know, if you need a part, You need it yesterday. And whatever the person wants for the part, that's too much. And, you know, there's back and forth, and they-
2: And Powell and Jackson's relationship was a lot like that, back and forth and back and forth. Even though Tom Wales would indict them together in 2000, the two former friends had been at each other's throats for years. What started as a handshake deal to rebuild the helicopter deteriorated within months with Powell bickering about Jackson's slow paying and Jackson complaining Powell wasn't working hard enough. By the fall of 1992, Jackson had hired Seattle attorney Larry Setchell to draw up papers to formally incorporate the venture and to put some structure around the partners' respective responsibilities. By the following spring, things seemed to have stabilized in the project, if not with the partners but the men needed a specialist to perform some of the more complicated electronic work on the helicopter. Enter Ken Karatu and John Hearn at the Linden Airport.
3: John, if you'll give me a mic check here.
2: A mic check in
4: Japanese or in English?
3: I'll take it in Japanese if you have it.
2: After flying thousands of miles and driving hundreds more, we somehow find ourselves in the living room of Ken Karatu's former business partner, John Hearn, getting a tutorial in Japanese.
4: Minaji-san, Kyoji-san, Fujimi-dis, soda
3: Great. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. We are here in the Fort Worth area talking to John Hearn.
4: Hello, everybody.
2: My, my name is John Hearn. You got the right guy. Good. So, Hearn's a Vietnam a vet, sort of and his home office of is littered with memorabilia from a bygone era. It's called a Navy Achievement Medal. We're here trying to figure out how Steve Jackson, the pilot, and his business partner, Kim Powell, came into Hearn and Ken Karatu's orbit.
4: Ken had made an agreement with a guy named Powell who wanted to bring a helicopter down to our airport and do work on it a little bit so that they could fly it out of there on a test flight. And they wanted to know if they could use my hangar. And I said, sure, I'm going to be gone for a month or two, no problem.
2: But of course... As with everything else in this story, Hearn would have a problem. First with his partner, Ken Karatu, when the two men were establishing a business to export airplane and helicopter parts from Vietnam in the summer of 1993. There was something in the court records about having a falling out with him while you were in Vietnam. What was that about?
4: Well, I got into it with him because he was negotiating an engine, and I'm trying to buy 300 of them. And I think he's trying to work against me. And I didn't know what his scheme was. I mean, this wasn't...
2: Hearn's falling out with Karatu would get worse when Karatu would turn against his partner and tell Kim Powell that Hearn was going through a bankruptcy. And they'd better be careful about leaving the helicopter in his hangar.
4: Making up stories that I wasn't a good guy because I was in a bankruptcy deal going and I just went through a divorce, unstable or something. And they had a million-dollar bird aircraft in there
2: Panicked that their prized helicopter might get seized as part of a legal proceeding, Powell and Jackson scrambled to move their helicopter out of Hearn's hangar at the airport. But finding no place to take the bird, Caratu and Powell cooked up another solution. Hearn was still out of the country in Vietnam, so Powell and Caratu approached the airport manager about switching the hangar lease over to Powell and Jackson's company, Intrex Helicopters, Inc., just so I have it, the spelling of your last name is Borsma.
0: Borzma. B R O E R S M A.
2: Okay. And can you just tell me what your responsibilities were back in the nineties with regard to the Linden Airport?
0: I was the airport manager, which basically meant I was the guy that mowed the airport and collected tie down fees
2: and Doug Borsma owns a carpet cleaning business in Linden. But 25 years ago, he was the GM slash lawnmower at the Linden Airport. How did it come about that Intrex took over the lease? I just remembered being contacted
0: by Powell and having him say, I'm taking over. And so I I changed the billing address to where I was sending the monthly bill for the the hangar rent. You got to understand, the whole reason for renting out property at the Linden Airport was to raise enough money to keep the lawn mowed.
2: This informality in the lease, though, exploded when John Hearn returned from Vietnam to find the locks changed to his hangar and what was effectively his home. And all hell broke loose.
4: When I got there, I could smell cigarette smoking in my place. And my key didn't work. And something wasn't right. And there was somebody in there. And I says, this isn't something screwy here. So I called one of the police. And when we got back over there, there was nobody in there, but somebody had been in there, and they were sitting in the corner with my rifles, and they were smoking a cigarette. And I don't
2: know. Locking Hearn out of his hangar would kick off a surprisingly acrimonious round of police reports, lawsuits, and restraining orders that embroiled not only Hearn and Caratu, but Powell and Steve Jackson as well. Here's airport manager Doug Brueresma's take on it.
3: Were you at all privy to this dispute that happened between Hearn and Caratou?
0: Yes, but I never knew what it was about. What I did know was one had a restraining order on the other one, and then it got reversed. I can't remember what actually happened. Either John insinuated that Ken stole his gun, or Ken insinuated that John stole his gun. I just know that they were fighting over stuff. You know, like, you took my stuff.
2: And it wasn't just Hearn and Caratu fighting over stuff. It was Hearn versus Powell and Jackson, too. And the fight quickly made its way to the courts, where Hearn would first win and then later lose his efforts to secure the hangar and, with it, Powell and Jackson's million-dollar helicopter. This pedestrian litigation over who took whose stuff would pit Hearn against Caratoo, Powell, and Jackson, with Hearn trying to take back over the hangar where he lived and the other three countersuing Hearn for conversion of property. The lawsuit would wind its way through Whatcom County, Washington, with little fanfare until one of the litigants, helicopter mechanic Ken Karatou, would fail to show for court.
0: I walked out to the field and there was a sheriff there and the sheriff told me that the body had been removed and had been badly burned and obviously died on impact, and that it was Ken.
3: Tell me when did you see the ultralight come down? Or? No, no, I didn't. Actually,
0: what I, I read in the report last night that you sent me, mm-hmm. the eyewitness, and she happens to be my first cousin. Oh, oh.
3: really?
2: Everywhere we went, we found little connections like this that filled in just a little more of the puzzle.
3: So, Larry, if you wouldn't mind, spell your last name for me.
0: S-T-A-P. Great. Short, sweet, and to the point. (laughs)
2: Larry Stapp, Doug Broyer's cousin, is most definitely that. Short, sweet, and to the point.
3: Tell me what were you doing the day this event that you were recalling for me?
0: I was out on a tractor in the field doing some field work.
3: Yeah, and tell me about that day. What did you see when you were out there?
0: What was I doing out there? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. Well, I was out on the
2: field. Sometimes interviews just go like this. You either have to lead the witness or simply wait them out. But like Big Al, Larry quickly warms up to us.
5: I'm
0: out in a tractor in the field. I'm always just looking around. And I observed an ultralight to the south of our farm. And as I was watching it, all of a sudden it made a hard bank to either the left or to the right. And it plummeted straight down into the ground.
2: There's a detailed sheriff's report about the crash that we'll post on sbswpodcast.com. But given what we knew about the FBI's suspicions, a couple of things in there catch our eyes.
3: So, David, tell me what you learned about the ultralight crash report.
2: So there is a ton of detail in this report. Ultimately, what they say is that the cause of the crash is inconclusive, that they can't make a determination about that. But here's the detail that is really odd. The report says, quote, "...there is what appears to be a plastic tube with a fuel filter in the middle that is not charred, melted, or burned. The tubing is located slightly south of the main body of the wreckage. The odor from the tubing is similar to the odor of gasoline." Okay. And here's the rub on this here. So it's, quote, there are no marks of clamps on either end of the tubing, and the tubing filter appears to be new. The aircraft was reported to be just assembled, and this was its first flight.
0: When I was talking to the sheriff, that there was question as to whether or not the engine quit in the air or whether the engine was running when it hit. But it appears that Larry Stapp thought he heard the engine quit. So that's consistent with what the sheriff was trying to describe to me. It was definitely a a blunt hit. It wasn't a forced landing.
2: I'm not familiar with the type of ultralight that it was, but why wouldn't it have kind of glided down
0: I would have to assume that Ken was familiar with controlling the aircraft because they're very easy to fly. If the engine quits, you just glide it down. Apparently, there must have been some kind of terrible judgment that caused the aircraft to stall or a malfunction. And I don't believe any investigation was ever done to make discovery on that.
2: If the engine went out, you should still be able to get some type of glide and attempt a landing?
0: Absolutely. That's one of the easiest airplanes to put into a glide.
2: Right. So it makes it sound like there was something catastrophic or, you know, suspicious.
0: Yeah. And I will tell you that was my assumption.
2: It was my assumption, too. You see, we had one other fact we had gathered in our investigation in Linden. I had spoken with an attorney who didn't want to be identified on record, but who was in a position to know such things. And this attorney told me something that made my hair stand on end. When this aircraft took off on its maiden voyage with a fuel line that seems not to have been properly secured, it was supposed to have another passenger on board. But Karatu didn't allow that person to board the aircraft that day because he had forgotten his helmet. And that person was shaken to the core when he saw the aircraft nosedive to the ground and erupt in fire. And who was that other passenger? None other than the pilot's partner, Kim Stafford Powell. It is, of course, entirely possible that Ken Caratu's ultralight crash was just an accident. The NTSB never investigated because it was a home-built machine, so all we have is the sheriff's report. But in any unexplained death, it's always worth asking another question. Who would benefit from it? In a different set of buried documents, we found a shareholders agreement between Kim Powell and Steve Jackson, the pilot. It entitled each person to buy out the other party's interests upon the death of the other at market value. And at the time of the crash, the sole asset of the corporation was the partially rebuilt helicopter at the heart of the men's dispute. Meaning Kim Powell's death would entitle Jackson to take over the Bell helicopter for a song. And these ties between the Caratu matter and the Whale's murder investigation wouldn't end there. When Hearn was locked out of his hangar by Caratoo, Powell, and Jackson, he called the FAA to narc on what exactly the fellas had been up to there in Linden, thereby initiating the doomsday sequence for the Whale's indictments of Powell and the pilot six years later. And this part of the story is even more bizarre. And I couldn't get in. So they had changed the
4: locks while you were going? Everything was locked up. Then all of a sudden, I got in and I seen everything there. And the next morning, I got on my phone and I called my buddy at the FAA because this helicopter was being modified. So tell me what you saw in the hangar. They were taking things out like the foot pedals and changing them to a different name. And they were doing things that wasn't regular maintenance to go for a test flight like I'd been led to believe. And there was blueprints laying out there with writing all over it where they were rewiring things. It's not Greek to me. And so I called the FAA, and I told them what was going on. Who'd you call? I called Reichardt
2: And Reichardt is Bill Reichardt. At the time, he was an aviation safety inspector for the FAA's Seattle field office.
4: Reichardt, I believe his name is Reichardt he got in a car and was out there from the time he left seattle or renton he was there probably in an hour and a half
2: were you he, surprised by that that they responded yeah so i was quickly? surprised it was
4: a huey and everything and you know I, I thought he'd just kind of come out maybe in the next day or two did he say why he came out so quickly No, he wanted to look at what i had i showed him he got on the phone and then he turned around and told me lock this hanger up and leave you know i got out of there i closed it up It was the next day, there was uh, people coming from a helicopter factory and they were people from Washington, DC. There must have been at least six men, or maybe three to six, I don't remember that. From the FAA? From the government.
2: Why were they so anxious about that particular helicopter that they came all the way out from DC in a day?
4: Well, it had a falsified number, I guess, on the airplane itself. And they got people to come out there that would take a certain piece of metal loose and there'd be a stamp number hidden in there that Bell hides, a hidden number. So they, they come out there, they tell you to lock it up and then lock it up, don't touch nothing. They took things apart and they put it back exactly the same way while I was sitting there having coffee watching.
3: How long were the, they wait, there? wait,
4: wait, wait, wait! The FAA guys, the took FAA s- guys that came with these civilian guys from New York, and they took the heli- DC. They took the helicopter apart. No, they took things apart. So, what does that mean? They might have taken a cover off here and took pictures of it, and then put it back. They were looking for something. They were really, I guess, you would call it the detective with a with a big magnifying glass, looking at something really fine, detailed part numbers or something.
3: Did they explain to you what was happening at the time?
4: Nope, they just told me you didn't see nothing, you don't know nothing.
3: Were you suspicious or...? Oh,
4: hell yes, I was suspicious.
2: And our spidey senses were tingling as well. I don't know about you, but I've never known the federal government to be anxious about anything. And here they were, along with people from Bell Helicopter, dropping everything to come check out this one random helicopter in one of the most remote regions of the country. And the question is why?
5: You know, I think that, you know, to understand where it starts, you got to go back to Bell, because Bell was very active. You're saying.
2: Here's defense attorney and former AUSA Bob Chadwell again.
5: Anybody, any operator, anywhere that Bell believed was about to make use of this big supply dump and all these helicopters was going to cut into Bell's profit margin. So there were cases in several places that Bell had pushed for. And a lot of times it was the FAA acting on behalf of what Bell had provided them. But always in the background, I think if you dig back far enough, you're going to find that the initial motivation is Bell trying to prevent people from making use of these parts. I, I remember
2: and while Bell's motivation seemed obvious enough, what was less apparent was the interest of the FAA and the U.S. Attorney's Office.
5: Like I say, I think the real reason that it was of interest here is that it was being sold as a safety of flight.
2: It would make a lot more sense to me if there was this massive helicopter repair operation going on somewhere and you got to shut it down. But it is literally one well, that's what it was here.
5: But then there was one here. And there was one here. And somebody got one through over there. So from some people's perspective, it was a camel hitting its nose under the tent.
2: It would take Chadwell almost two years to convince Wales and Bob Westinghouse that the FAA's case against his client, the pilot's co-defendant, Chester Raspberry, was not worth the paper it was printed on. Why do you think it took the U.S. Attorney's Office and Tom and Bob so long to get to that point? Well, I think we were both on a learning curve
5: there because they had a couple agents from the FAA that were just completely convinced. They had convinced Bob and Tom that this was all safety of flight and whatever. And, you know, I think they were drinking the corporate Kool-Aid to a degree.
2: But Tom and Bob were smart and savvy guys who didn't strike me as the kind of guys to drink the Kool-Aid. And this whole flawed notion that one type of Bell part, the military one, was inferior to its civilian counterpart, well, that seemed downright simple to understand.
5: The end result was that Bell finally fessed up that every part in every helicopter was inspected by FAA. They're, they're on the line, everything goes by them. They don't stop saying, oh, can't look at that one, that's a military one. So, like I say, this was something that unraveled.
2: And Wales' case against the pilot and Powell would unravel as well in the summer before his death. And now, I wanna come back to that helicopter plea deal that was the capstone to the whole helicopter case and which the feds would imply was the pilot's motive for killing whales. Specifically, to that 190-word plea proffer that so angered the pilot because it named him as the president of Intrex and claimed he had conspired to change the helicopter's logbooks. Because there were four people mentioned in that plea proffer. One wasn't talking to us. One was a ghost. One was killed in an ultralight. And one would meet us at a Burger King in Corsicana, Texas.
3: There was a promise made Dreamers believed But we didn't know What we were
2: headed towards We will be back in two weeks with a special two-part season finale. Do yourself a favor and subscribe if you haven't already, because you don't want to miss it when it drops. And while you're there... Please do us a favor and share our podcast on social media. Here's a smidge of what you can look forward to.
5: Uh, Something really stinks here. This doesn't pass the smell test.
3: We're at a Burger King, and we're speaking with Ricky Boatwright.
2: How did the grand jury take that testimony?
5: Well, they asked me a few more questions and stuff, and they seemed to be pretty interested, but the lawyer didn't seem to be too interested in it. He wanted to change the subject. The prosecutor?
2: Whoever that guy was. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Every week they're bringing their A-game, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Democracy is written and performed by Dysfunction. An original score and voiceover work is provided by Hallie Payne. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening.